You know, if you have been with us the last couple of days, during the weekdays, we were very glad to be hosting the Project Timothy Conference. And while it was a delight and pleasure for me to be interacting and worshipping with uh, friends and Christians from other churches, nothing beats coming together to worship with the church family, this church family at Grace Baptist Church this morning. And today we shall continue looking at the book of 1 Samuel found in the Old Testament. My intent is that we'll be slowly making our way through the first seven chapters of this book in six messages, focusing on the prophet Samuel, the prophet from God's grace. We have covered 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1. And for today, we will look at the whole of 1 Samuel chapter 4. And this portion of the Bible tells us of the story of God's glory presence departing from Israel. But before we get into today's message, because we need the Holy Spirit to apply God's word into our lives, let us pray. Make the book live to us, O Lord. Show us yourself within your word. Show us ourselves and show us our need for Jesus Christ. And make the book live to us. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Have you had the unpleasant experience of someone talk, taking you and your word lightly? You know, with the best intention, you share with them your knowledge and experience. Now, only for them to give no weight to what you say. You speak to them with sincerity and from your expertise, gained from years of hard work and study of the subject, only for them to casually dismiss you. Have you had this experience before? Do you feel that a person has given you little respect and no honour? Do you think that you were treated lightly and no weight was given to your words? We desire for others to give weight to our words and to treat us with respect. What about God? Do you give weight to God and honour, respect and reverence Him? Him who is infinitely more worthy. This then is the main problem we see in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1 to 22. The Israelites treat God lightly and do not honour Him and fail to give Him the weight that is due. The author of 1 Samuel told his readers that God will withdraw His glory presence when God is dishonoured and not glorified. And we see this happening in the passage today. So if you have your Bibles, please open to 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1 to 22. And please follow with me as we work our way through this text. Please keep your finger on the page and follow along, as I will not be reading the entire passage, but only selected portions. You know, when you receive an email from a friend, you don't only just read the middle paragraph of that email, right? You will read the fourth paragraph, paying attention to what the third paragraph and the fifth paragraph says. You will also read the fourth paragraph as part of the purpose of the entire email. Likewise, every passage of the Bible has a context. And in order to, for us to better understand 1 Samuel 4, we need to understand both the immediate context and the bigger context of the whole Bible as we look at the story so far. Remember that the books of 1 and 2 Samuel cover the lives of Samuel, Saul, and David. The time period for this is in Israel's history for today's passage is near the end 
of the period of Judges, during the transition into the time of the kings of Israel. This period occurs when the Israelites were ready in the promised land. God had rescued the Israelites in a great exodus event and Moses had brought them to the very edge of the land and Joshua had led them into the conquest of the land. However, everything was not all happy ever after in the land. Moses had actually warned them before they entered the land. And we see this in the book of Deuteronomy, that they were to obey the covenant they made with God. They were to worship God, to pursue holiness, and to live as God's own people in the land that God has given them. If to do not, God says that the curses of the covenant will actually befall them. And we know the story. They failed to do so. As a result, it was a dark and difficult period for the people of Israel. The people had repeatedly turned away from God. They rebelled and sinned against God and did what was right in their own eyes. As a result, God God judged them for their sins. The enemies surrounding their land continued to oppose and oppress them. And this is when we were introduced to Samuel. You see, during this time, they really needed good leaders. But we saw how the high priest Eli's son, Hopni and Peneus, they were totally indifferent to God. They were unholy. They were worthless. There was no hope in their religious leader. But yet, God does not abandon His people. God is there with them and at work. And we saw glimpses of this in the story so far. We saw how God works in the life of Hannah, Samuel's mother, reversing her barrenness and giving her a son. We saw the birth of Samuel and Samuel's dedication to God and to service in the house of God at Shiloh. In all of this, God works out His plan to deliver His people. And even when judgment was announced on the house of Eli, we saw God's grace in the life of Samuel and in the na- or God's grace for the nation of Israel and how Samuel grew in the presence of God. We saw last message how God called Samuel to be a prophet of His grace to His people, once again revealing Himself by His word to His people and bringing them under the blessings of His word. And then we come to today's passage. Chapter 4 and 6 of 1 Samuel, if you actually look at it carefully, it's almost like an interlude. We hear no more of the prophet Samuel until 1 Samuel chapter 7. Samuel, the focus of the first three chapters, suddenly drops out of sight. And the focus shifts to stories about the ark. It's because God will teach Israel some lessons in this ark stories and will remove the old regime under Eli and sons before the Israelites return to repentance under Samuel. You see, God was paving the way for Samuel. We see here in chapter 4, it breaks down neatly into two main sections, verses 1 to 11 and verses 12 to 22. The first reports the two battles Israel had with the Philistines and ends with a notice of two deaths. Hopni and Peneus dies. And the second section tells the reporting of the news of the battle and also concludes with two deaths, that of high priest Eli and the wife of Peneus. But more important for us, Framing our understanding of this two section is actually 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1, the first half of verse 1. 
And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. We see God once again was speaking to His people through the prophet Samuel. But we see in today's passage that His word goes unheeded and is taken lightly by Israel. You know, one of the rules of advertising is to create a desire for the product that the company is selling. Yeah, you know, this advertisement for Coke here, you know, the real thing. Most time we can do with actually drinking water. But we look at that and we, ah, we desire to have a bottle of Coke. I mean, it's just soda water with sugar. You don't really need the product or actually really want it. But the advertisements are designed to create that need and desire in you. The product may even be useful, but most times you're being subtly manipulated into buying something you may not originally wanted. Have you ever bought something that you thought looked good because of the advertisement? And then you brought it home, and you leave it on the shelf, and for a couple of months it remains on the shelf, or next couple of months it remains on the shelf. And after five years, it gathers dust, and then you throw it away. <laughs> you just regret buying it later. We see similarly here, manipulation happening in verses 1 to 11. The Israelites think that if they bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord into battle, that God will be obligated to fight for them and give them victory. Talk about manipulating God. But first, let's back up and look at the story. You know, most of us have days where, one of those days where nothing seems to go right. And we see here, nothing seems to be going right for Israel as well. Israel was defeated before the Philistines in their first battle. 4,000 men had been killed. Verse 2. Their, verse, their battle fails. And it's not as if God had not been active. He has been. But to the Israelite, he had acted in the wrong way. He had defeated Israel before the Philistines. Verse 3. And because of that, the elders of Israel did you know, what most typical Singaporeans would do. They did an after-action review. Okay? And they actually asked the right question. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? However, instead of seeking Samuel, they took action on their own. It was not that they did not know that the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. For the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. And if they actually saw God's word as revealed by the prophet Samuel, they would be reminded of Moses' warning in Deuteronomy 28-25, which says that the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies if they disobey God and broke the stipulations of the covenant with God. Rather, what did they do? They were taking God and His word too lightly. They did not put too much weight on God's word. Instead of repentance, they decided on a pragmatic course of action. They say, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. But just what is the Ark? The Ark of the Covenant is actually a rectangle box. Okay, it's coming on. Made of acacia wood, and it measures about 1.2 meters by 80 cm by 80 cm. The whole ark is actually covered with gold and carried on poles inserted in rings and the lower four corners, four lower corners. The lid or the mercy seat was a golden plate surrounded by two oppositely placed 
cherubs with outspread wings. But what is the significance of the ark? You see, the ark serves as a container for the two tablets of the Ten Commandments and also for the pot of manna and Aaron's rod. And it also serves as the meeting place in the inner sanctuary where God himself will meet with his servants and reveal his will to his servants. Therefore, the ark actually serves as a symbol of God's divine presence dwelling in the midst of his people and guiding his people. Perhaps Uzziah remembered how central the ark had been at the stopping of the flow of the Jordan River and at the destruction of Jericho. And they decided they are going to be needing some of this river-stopping, city-wall-destroying power of God. So they decided to bring the ark from Shiloh. You see, the, the eldest assumption was this. If we bring the ark to battle, God will be forced to deliver us in order to protect His honour. If they were to lose the battle and something happened to the ark, that would make God the loser, right? And of course, God would not allow that, right? They were manipulating God. They were using the ark almost like a talisman to ensure their victory. They were kind of using a strong arm pressure technique in getting God to do what they want. And when the Israelites act in this way, their concern was not to seek God, but to control Him. Not to submit, but to use Him. Not to obey, but to manipulate Him. You know, and in spite of Israel's enthusiasm, they gave a mighty shout. You know, I can almost imagine that. And one of the things I love to do is watch war movies or movies with battles, huge battle scenes. You know? and, and you can almost imagine that. They gave a mighty shout, so loud that the earth seemingly shook. We see this in verse 5. And the Philistines, we see them, they had fear and they were alarmed. Verse 6 to 9. But the plan fails. We see in verse 10. Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. The battle fails. And this time, they, almost, they lost almost 10 times more men. And they faced a total defeat. Every Israelite fled from the battle. It seems that God had suffered a great defeat. Christians, you must be, be aware of treating God like a thing to be manipulated. What is behind your motive for your fervent prayer and quiet time? Is it to worship and delight in God or to get God to accomplish something you desire? As Pastor Dale Ralph Davis writes, whenever the church stops confessing, thou art worthy and begins to chant, thou art useful, well, then you know that the ark of God has been captured again. When all gives way to utility, the ark of God has been captured by pragmatism. And from the onlooking eye, it seems that God actually suffered defeat. But if you actually read the story carefully, you will see something else at play here. God's judgment falls. It's only a hint at first. When the elders of Israel send a message to Shiloh, to bring the ark. The writer of 1 Samuel states almost matter-of-factly that the ark was in the care of Eli's son, Hopni and Peneus, verse 4. 
And as priests of God at Shiloh, it seems kind of obvious, right, that they will accompany the ark into battle. But when we see the results of the battle in verse 11, while there were many other deaths, what do we see? We note the deaths of Hopni and Peneus placed in the last climactic position. Careful readers would merely recognize what we have here is the fulfillment of God's word, of his decision in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 25, and of his threat in 1 Samuel 2.34 to put the sons of Eli to death on the same day because of their continuing unrepentant sins. And so we see the irony of uh, the first 11 verses. Israel plans to bring the ark as a key to victory. But God uses it to carry out His purposes to put Hopni and Peneus to death. We see the midst of two battle failures. God was actually acting to fulfill His word. Judgment falls on the son of Eli. God was removing the false priest that caused His people to go astray. And in His grace, restoring the rule of His word in the midst of His people. You know, for those of you who are interested in uh, international politics, um, we, I mean, uh, pardon to my friends from the US, but the United States are really famous for what they call gunboat diplomacy. You know what that means? It's basically to, to sh- it's a show of naval power to actually pursue their political objectives. So what the US do is, um, okay, this country is having some problems, political problems. I will bring like the huge aircraft carrier and two battleships and park it off the coast of the country. And that serves really as a threat. Okay? It's a threat that for most times is not carried out. It's like a threat of carrying a big stick but with the intention of not actually using it. However, God is not like that. We see here that God does not make empty threats. He will fulfill His threat of judgment. We see this in verses 12 to 22 where we see the threat of removing the house of Eli for their sins being fulfilled. So we see in the next section, we see Eli. And we see Eli painting, the picture of Eli, and he paints a pitiful sight. We see him described as an old man, quite heavy by now, verse 18, sitting by the side of the road, verse 13. He looks, but he does not see. He stares blankly because that's all a blind man can do now, verse 15. And we see him being deeply agitated, Perhaps he's trembling visibly. As the scripture says, his heart is. Verse 13. He seems to anticipate a disaster. Perhaps, perhaps, he remembers God's word regarding his son's death. Only he cannot weep as it had not yet been confirmed. He hears the rapid pounding of feet, but he cannot seize the torn clothes or the dirty salt head of the morning messenger. Verse 12. He waits for someone to tell him the news. He hears the commotion in town, verse 14. And when he asks about it, the dreaded answer comes. Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hopni and Peneus, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. Verse 17. His sons are dead. The ark of God has been captured. The glory presence of God has been exiled. And the news was too much for Eli. And the mention of the loss of the ark 
Eli being quite heavy, fell backwards and his neck snapped. Death, verse 18. Eli dies. And the news was also too much for Penea's wife. She was pregnant and soon delivered when she hears the news about the capture of the Ark of God and the death of her father-in-law and her husband. She gives birth for her labour pains has started. Verse 19. Even the encouragement of the women attending to her could not help remove or elevate her sorrow. She dies at childbirth, but not before naming her child Ichabod. Or where is the glory? The name mourns for Israel without the presence of God. She proclaims that the glory of God has departed from Israel. She sums that up. She sums up the dark, tragic day in verses 21 and 22. God's threat in rejecting Eli's household in 1 Samuel 2 comes to pass. God is not late in fulfilling his threat of judgment against the sins of Eli's household. But in contrary to her judgment that God's glory is gone, God is actually going to demonstrate his glory in the land of Philistines, as we see in chapter 5 and 6. God's judgment falls and his threat is fulfilled. There is a judgment against sin. Do we sometimes wing in our own sins, especially the seemingly respectable ones? Are you serious about your sins? Or do you sometimes think that you can get away with it? God is serious about sins. God's judgment against sin will come to pass and we can be certain of it. Penea's wife names her baby Ichabod, which means where is the glory? Glory comes from the root of the word meaning weightiness. weightiness. And Eli was described as being heavy in verse 18. And that's the play on the same root word. The word glory and its variations are repeated four times in this section. The focus in this second section is clearly on God's glory. However, the glory has departed from Israel. Or better, the glory has gone into exile from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Verse 22. God's glory presence departs. God's glory is withdrawn. God no longer dwells in the midst of His people. Quoting again from Pastor Dale Ralph Davis, the glory of God has indeed departed, but not because the ark of God has been captured. The ark has been captured because the glory has really departed. It is a tragedy when the glory presence of God no longer dwells among the people of God. Do we treasure God's presence? Are we seeking to honour and give God the weight that God is due? Or are we as a church treating God lightly? David Wells in his 1994 book, this is a theologian, so his words are a little thick, but bear with me. You know, in his book, uh, God in the Wasteland, he actually observes this. He says this, It is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. And I do not mean by this that he's ethereal or intangible, but rather God has become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequ inconsequently as not to be noticeable. 
he has lost his prominence for human life. Those who assure the posters of their belief in God's existence may nevertheless consider him less interesting than television. His commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence. His judgment no more awe-inspiring than the evening news. And his truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fork of flattery and lies. That is witlessness. That is witlessness. Wells' words were written almost 20 years ago, but they sound as warning to us. Wells warns that modern-day Christian of our tendency to take God lightly and not accord Him with the weight and glory that He is due. And today's passage warns us that we should give God the glory and honour that He is due or face God's judgment. And if we are honest with ourselves, we all do take God lightly. God has become weightless for many of us. It is because of our sin nature that we do not give Him the weight and glory that is due. And we do that by manipulating God. We use God instead of honouring God. We see Israel thinking that they can manipulate God in the passage today. We see the people in Jesus' time wanting to force Jesus to be king just because Jesus could multiply the fish and the loaves of bread and in doing so, giving them a free meal. Or people wanting Jesus to be their political king so that he can lead them in their fight against their oppressive Roman rulers. And we know that this was not the Father's plan for Jesus. As Roman 1.21 says, Although we know God, we do not honour Him as God or give thanks to Him. Rather, we want to use God for our own honour. You know, I often meet up with young people in our church and one of the wrong views of God often brought up in our conversations is the view of God as divine vending machine. <laughs> divine vending machine. You put the coins of quiet time in the God vending machine and you think that God is almost obligated to give you good results for your coming tests and exams. You put the coins of fervent prayer in the God vending machine and you think that God is almost obligated to give you relationship with the girl or guy that you admire. You put the coins of sacrificial church service into the God vending machine and you think that God is obligated to give you a happy and trouble-free life. You put the coins of leading in the church in the God vending machine and you think that God is obligated to give you a fulfilled life and that you'll be widely affirmed by others. Don't get me wrong, it's not that quiet time and prayer and sacrificial service and leading in church is wrong. I'm not saying that. But rather when you do not desire God's presence and you do not seek to honour and glorify God, primarily when you do these things, but rather you seek your own benefits, then what have we done? We have reduced God to a tool that you manipulate for your own purpose and advantage. And the tragic thing is this. This is not just restricted to the young people. All of us, young and old, have this sinful tendency to want to manipulate God for our own ends. Even in our church as a community, we tend towards pragmatism and expediency rather than focusing first on God's honour. We all make idols of created things and fail to worship the Creator. Which means this, my friends, 
actually all of us deserves God's judgment. You know, when we read the Bible, especially when we read the sins of the people, sometimes we tend to see ourselves better than we actually really are. No? We see the Israelites manipulating God and we say, nope, not me. Or we see the sin of the religious leaders, the house of Eli, and we think, nope, not me. Or we see the sins of failing to honour God and giving Him the weight that He deserves. And we think, nope, not me. But the thing, thing is this, we all, without exception, sin. We all seek to manipulate God. We fail at worshipping God rightly. We fail to give the glory to God that He is due. So reading the passage rightly is to identify ourselves with the sinners in the passage and not the one who thinks that he or she can do better if they were in a story. We all deserve God's judgment falling on us. And this means we all need the one who perfectly glorified the Father, Jesus Christ. This is what we need to remember. John 17, 4, speaking of Jesus, says, I, meaning Jesus, glorified you, meaning God, on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. You see, my friends, Jesus is the only one in all of history who perfectly obeyed the Father. He is the only one who faultlessly glorified the Father. He is the only one who gave God the weight that He is due. Jesus did not sin. And yet, Jesus, in accomplishing the work of salvation, took the judgment that is due uh, to fall on us for our sins. And He fully paid the penalty for that by His work on the cross. Christians, we are now spared the judgment for our sins. Jesus is also the one John speaks of in, first, in John chapter 1, verse 14. As the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is God's glory present, comes to dwell among us, who takes the judgment that is due us and in return purifies us from our sins, thus allowing us to dwell in relationship with God in His presence forever. Do you give weight to and value Jesus Christ? He is the one due our ultimate honour. Let us pray. Father God, you are the glorious one who is deserving of all our honour, praise and glory. Yet Father, many times we have not given you the weight in our lives you rightly deserve. We have tried to use you rather than to praise you. Lord God, we confess this, our sins, and ask that you forgive us. Help us in all areas of our lives to live as one forgiven, seeking to glorify your name in our homes, in our workplaces, and in our schools. We pray that we might do this so that the world might come to know you and the glory of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, Amen.